Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Hey, good morning and welcome to week five in our series, Name Above All Names. It's a series of conversations where we are unpacking the various titles and names of Jesus given in Scripture in an effort to know better the one that we have chosen to follow. And listen, here's the deal. What Jesus passionately prayed in the garden on the night of his arrest is true. John 17, verse 3. Now, this is eternal life. And eternal life is not just talking about quantity as in forever. It's talking also about quality as in life in all its fullness, as a, as a life of shalom, a life that is flourishing, complete, with nothing missing. Now, this is eternal life that they... Know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Listen, knowing Jesus is what life is all about. Now, so far in this series, we've un... And let me just say this. If you want that kind of life, if you want a life that is flourishing, complete, nothing missing, if you want life in all its fullness, say amen or type amen in the comments. It's, it's weird. Hey, we're all good. Hey, I see you out there smiling at me. All right? And, and, and here's the deal. The more you know Jesus, the more you will experience this life. And so far in this series, we've talked about how Jesus is the Word become flesh, uh, that Jesus is the mighty God, Emmanuel, that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, that, that Jesus is the Good Shepherd. The Lord is our Shepherd and we have everything we need. When God is our shepherd, we lack nothing. And, and listen, if, if all of those titles or names uh, for Jesus are, are true, and they are, and if you really see and believe them, and you should, then it changes everything. It changes your perspective. It changes your purpose. It changes your focus. It changes your hope. It changes your life. Now, the title that we're going to unpack this morning is found in the first chapter of, God, of God's gospel, written by John. And uh, I, let me pray you into that today. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we love you. When we see that cross, we see freedom. When we see that grave, we see Jesus. And God, we are being changed from grace to grace. We thank you, God, that our debt is paid. And, and Father, right now, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would just move I pray that your words will come across in a way that you want them to. And I pray that this title of Jesus that we're going to talk about this morning, God, just means so much more to us when we walk out of these doors and when we click off this uh, online platform than it did when we began. God, we love you and we trust you. And God, help me to preach this message clearly and with boldness. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're going to begin in John chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, Brothers and sisters, hear the word of the Lord. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is close to the Father, has made him known. Now this was John's testimony, when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. 
He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, nuh-uh, I'm not. Are, are you the prophet, probably Isaiah? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And I love his response. John replied in, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. In other words, you want to know what I say about myself? I say about myself exactly what God says about me. And listen, there is no freer way to live than that. And I want to encourage you to stop obsessing about what you think other people think about you and to start obsessing with what God already says and what God already thinks about you. Amen? Amen. Uh, now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He's the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I just kind of wonder, as Jesus heard John say that, if he kind of just stopped and paused a second. Because he knew exactly what that meant. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. I myself did not know him, yet we grew up together. He was my cousin. We went fishing together. We built things together. I knew he was Jesus, but I did not know he was the Messiah. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. He's talking about Jesus' baptism, what happened many weeks before this. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I've seen and I testify that he is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. May God bless the reading of his word. Nipper Grove, Jesus is the Lamb of God. What does that mean? And what images do you think flash through the minds of those who were standing on the banks of the Jordan River that day with John the Baptist? Now, I think it's safe to assume that lambs are not a part of our everyday life. I mean, for the most part, the only time that you and I have ever encountered a lamb was either at a zoo or on a plate, right? As a lamb chop or in our gyro. That's what those things are called. I looked it up. Don't correct me. It's not gyro. I've ordered those things, and I've said it wrong so many times. I had to play that back online like 14 times. Yero, yero. That's what they're called. Now, I can't wait to order one and get it right, because I always say, I say it wrong. But anyhow, anyhow. And so, lambs in our lives, not so much. But lambs in the lives of God's people in the first century, very, very much, for very, very long, for thousands of years. You see, lambs were a a major part of the Old Covenant sacrificial system. And listen, since the time of Moses, around 1400 B.C., millions of lambs had been sacrificed. Now, you may be wondering, 
So, so what is the purpose behind the sacrificial system anyway? Well, I think I'll let God's word answer that in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you. I've given the life of the creature to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And yeah, it may seem cruel to sacrifice an animal, but keep in mind that sin is pretty cruel. In fact, it's deadly and someone has to pay for it. Scripture says in Hebrews 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And listen, as unfair as it seems, I suppose that it's much better for an animal to give his life than for a person to give their life. Now, the word atonement is one of those very rare um, theological terms that can be understood by looking at its English form. You see, the word atonement signifies a reconciliation that puts people at one with God, at one meant, atonement. And the, the Greek and Hebrew that's beneath uh, that, that term it has, has a twofold meaning. Number one, the purging of defilement, and number two, the restoration of peace between God and man. Yeah, at one minute. Count me in, I'll take that supersize, right? You still tracking with me? I hope so, because everything we discussed so far is necessary in understanding what is meant by the title, Jesus is the Lamb of God. And what I want to do now is I want to unpack six, six phrases that we find in Scripture that summarize what the Bible has to say about Jesus being the Lamb of God. The first is found in Genesis chapter 22, and it's the phrase, where is the Lamb? Repeat after me, where is the Lamb? You there on the sofa. I saw you. You didn't repeat after me. I, now I got to do it again. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? I know I'm not right, but that's okay. I lived on a submarine. The radiation did something to me. Now, now Genesis 22 is where we find that account of Abraham taking his son Isaac up to the top of Mount Moriah, which, by the way, is the same place where Solomon would one day build the temple. And Isaac was a child that God had promised to Abraham when Abraham was, was 75 years old. It was through this child, through Isaac, that God promised that one day he would have descendants that would bless all the world and that would outnumber the stars in the sky and the sands on the shore. And just a short 25 years, who's getting impatient later, Isaac showed up. And here's something I just want to point out to you, if you didn't know this already. God always keeps his promises However, he keeps them on his time schedule, not ours, right? There's not a promise that God will ever break. And so I think the psalmist has some great advice in Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. If you're in that waiting, remember, as we like to sing, you know, he's in the waiting, right? You know, he's not going to break his promise. It's his schedule, not yours. Well, in Genesis chapter 22, Isaac is probably about 17 or 18 years old. And God appears to Abraham and he asks him to do something that had to blow his mind and, and devastate his world. Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, he, he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love. Sound familiar? Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. 
And I can't even begin to imagine what was going through the mind of Isaac at this time. Isaac is his son. It's his only son, the son that he loves. He is the, he is the child. He is the son of the promise. Why, God? I, I don't understand, God. This doesn't make any sense, God. Why would you have me do this? Nevertheless, early the next morning, Abram got up and loaded his donkey. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I don't think he told Sarah anything about this, right? But I do think that he said, hey, Isaac, you forgot to hug your mom. Give her a good hug. And I kind of picture Abraham standing off the side watching Isaac hug Sarah with tears forming in the corner of his eyes. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Sometimes you get places fast and sometimes it takes a long time. I think it, Tim, it seemed like, Are you kidding me? We're already here. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. First place we see worship in the Bible. Uh, the law of first usage, right? You know, and, and understanding Scripture, worship involves sacrifice. Interestingly, he says, we will come back to you. you know, the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, that Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. So he's thinking, hey, even if I kill him, which God wants me to do, he will raise him up to keep his promise. I still think that would be pretty hard to do. Abram took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. A little foreshadowing there, right? Placed the wood on Isaac, the wood of the cross placed on Jesus, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son. Abram replied, Isaac said, the fire and wood are here. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? I think there was a long, long pause as Abraham cleared his throat. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And I'm not sure what Isaac was thinking at that moment. But once they reached the spot, the reality of what was about to go down became very clear as Abraham built the altar, as he stacked the wood, as he bound his son, and as he drew back the knife. And then God, just at the right moment, stopped him. You see, that was always God's intention. You know, and God was simply, not simply from Abraham's standpoint, but God was testing him to see, hey, do you love me more than you love your son? And Abraham, no doubt, his heart still pounding, looked over, and in the thicket he saw a ram caught in the thicket, and he sacrificed that ram as a burnt offering. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, Yahweh Yair. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Amen. And it was. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is your provision. Jesus is your replacement. You know, you know, I don't think God could have painted a more dramatic or powerful picture of the gospel than he did in the early chapters of Genesis. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But listen, on that hill of Calvary, there was no one to stop. Because it was God's will that his son would give his life. 
The next phrase we're going to look at, we need to fast forward about 600 years. And it's the phrase, slaughter the lamb. Now, as Exodus 12 opens up, God's people have been in Egypt as slaves for about 400 years. And it was time for their deliverance. And Moses, who had just returned from hiding out in the desert for 40 years, was standing before the Pharaoh of Egypt, demanding that the Pharaoh let God's people go. And he was backed up by the mighty power of God. However, despite all the miracles that God performed, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let them leave. So finally, to get his point across, God decided that he was going to wipe out all the living firstborn creatures in all of Egypt. And the problem was that there were many firstborn among God's people in Egypt. So, so how would God pronounce this judgment without destroying his own people? Well, God had a plan to save his people, as it always does. And that plan was for each household to take, to take a lamb, a lamb, a one-year-old male lamb without defect, and to sacrifice it, prepare a meal, and to smear some of that blood on the doorframe of their house. Um, I found this on an old Facebook post from that time right here. You know, that's one of those families doing that right there. Um, that's a very valuable picture. Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop. That's a plant, right? Take this plant. Dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes to the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the door frame, and he'll pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. And so God's people did exactly as God told them, and God's wrath passed over them. Maple Grove, Jesus is the Lamb of God. In fact, Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been slain. You know, he, he was the Passover Lamb that all lambs were actually pointing to. Hebrews 9, verse 28 says, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. Right? One time. And he took care of everything. And he'll appear a second time. Not the bear sin, but the bring not the bear sin, but to bring salvation to all those who are waiting for him. And listen, when his sacrificial blood is applied to our lives, God's wrath passes over us. Romans chapter five, verse nine says it this way. Since we have now been justified, you know, just as if I've never sinned, right? By his blood, without the blood, there is no forgiveness. It's blood that we find our atonement. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Where is the lamb? Slaughter the lamb. The next phrase is from Isaiah chapter 53, which is one of the greatest messianic prophecies in all the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53. In it, we hear his humble birth described. We hear about how he was a man of sorrows and how he was rejected. And then we read a powerful account of his sacrificial death. Now, from our side of the cross, it makes perfect sense to us that Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus. But I'm not so sure that on the other side of the cross, it was so easy for them to see. I mean, even the disciples struggle with this, right? Every time Jesus talked about his death, they got bent out of shape. In fact, one time after Jesus talked about his death, Peter took Jesus aside. 
and he rebuked him. Epitamao. I epitamao you. Right? That's the same word that Jesus used when he rebuked demons. Epitamao. It's the same word he used when he rebuked the winds and the waves. Epitamao. And just in case you're wondering, rebuking God, not such a good idea. All right? That's where Jesus says to Peter, right? Get behind me what? Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's way. You're thinking about your way. Led like a lamb. Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. That's Jesus. And the sheep of four shears of silence, so he did not open his mouth. Now, I don't know this from personal experience, but I understand that sheep do not fight or struggle when they are being slaughtered. And in fact, uh, that's become an idiom in our world today. This is from the Cambridge Dictionary. If someone does something or goes somewhere like a lamb to the slaughter, they do it without knowing that something bad is going to happen. And therefore, they act calmly without fighting against the situation. And yes, it's true that, that Jesus was calm and that Jesus didn't fight against the situation. But listen, it was not because he was unaware of what was going to happen. Jesus was fully aware of what was going to happen. It's why Jesus came in the first place. And, and Jesus said in, in Matthew 26, verse 53, he said, hey, you know what? If I wanted to, I could call and God would send down 12 legions of angels to help me. Picture, you've been in a stadium before. Old Testament, one angel wiped out 175,000 Assyrians, right? So they're tough. Let me just say that straight up. Angels are tough. You don't want to fight an angel right now. I'm just telling you. They're not the cute little baby. That's not the angel, right? They look great on cards and get bags, but that's not what they were like. And the legion was around 5,000 soldiers. 12 times 5,000 is 60,000. He could have called that, but he, but he didn't. Remember what Jesus said? When he's talking about being a good shepherd, as we looked at last week, he says, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Led like a lamb to the slaughter. See, Jesus makes it, Isaiah makes it clear that Jesus' death was a substitutionary death. He didn't die for his sin. He died for, he didn't have any. He died for my sin and he died for your sin. Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced for Steve Malone's transgressions. He was crushed for Steve Malone's. You can put your name in there. Don't pick on me. You got your own. He was crushed for Steve Malone's iniquities. The punishment that brought Steve Malone peace was on him. And by his wounds, Steve Malone is healed. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is your provision. He is your replacement. He is what allows God's wrath to pass over you. And he is your willing substitute. By his wounds, you are healed. Amen? Next phrase is, behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 2,000 years ago, Isaac asked the question, where is the Lamb? And now John, as he stands baptizing in the Jordan River, he says, hey, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away 
the sins of the world. Yeah, yeah, millions and millions of lambs had come and gone before, but Jesus is not just a lamb. He is the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and that word that's translated, takes away, it, 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 it carries the idea of taking something up and carrying it away as if to destroy it. Understand, Jesus took away our sins by bearing that sin upon his own body. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Uh, Jesus took the charges that were against us, against you, and he nailed them to a cross. Colossians 2, verse 14. And Jesus has taken away your sin and mine, and it has removed it as far away from us as the east is from the west. Psalm 103, verse 12. And he remembers those sins no more, Hebrews 8, verse 12. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And listen, here's the deal. We need to decide whether or not what John the Baptist said is right or not. I mean, is this who Jesus is? Because if John is right... Your biggest problem, my biggest problem, it's not that we don't have enough money. It's not that we don't have enough education. It's not that we don't have enough opportunity. It's not politics and whether we get the right person in or out in Washington, D.C. Your biggest problem, my biggest problem is not the coronavirus. Our biggest problem is the same. Sin. We are sinners and we need a Savior. We need someone to make at one man with God. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away, that takes up and carries off and removes as far as the east is from the west and remembers no more, that nails to the cross, that bears the sin upon his own body of the world. Where is the Lamb? Slaughter the Lamb. Led like a Lamb. Behold the Lamb. And worthy is the Lamb. Now, something I, I didn't know uh, until my studies this week is that the term lamb is used more times in the book of Revelation than anywhere else in the entire Bible. You see, everything in the book of Revelation relates to the lamb. Uh, the shepherd who will wipe away every tear and who will lead us to living waters is the lamb. Revelation 7, verse 17. Uh, the song that is sung by the victors is the song of Moses and the song of the lamb. Revelation 15, verse 3. The one who triumphs is the Lamb, for he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 17, verse 14. The throne is the throne of the Lamb. Revelation 22, verse 1. The heavenly city is the temple of the Lamb. Revelation 21, verse 22. The light in the city is the Lamb. Revelation 21, 23. The marriage is the marriage of the Lamb. Revelation 19, verse 7. The bride is the wife of the Lamb, Revelation 21, verse 9. And the book that has all the names that are saved written in it is the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 21, verse 27. It's all about the Lamb. And, and we first meet this Lamb in Revelation, in Revelation chapter 5. And in Revelation chapter 5, uh, John kind of sneaks into the throne room of God and he gets a glimpse of the Almighty. And in his right hand, God holds a scroll written on both sides, seemingly representing God's decree plan for history. And John is curious as a cat, and he wants to know what's in the scroll. 
And listen, of all the glories of heaven, all the angels, all the elders, all the creatures, all the beasts, no one is worthy to open the scroll. And, 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 and John is brokenhearted as he wonders, who will carry out God's plan? Is there anyone worthy? Will God's purposes go unfilled? Will God's people go unheard and unloved? And so John begins to cry. Now the word he uses is clio. It's the same word for cry that was used when Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem when he rode in and he wept over it. It's the same word to describe when Peter denied Jesus three times and he went out and he wept bitterly. So, so John is just weeping uncontrollably. And then one of the 24 elders comes over to comfort him saying, do not weep. See, the lying of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Revelation 5, verse 5. And so the drum roll begins. Right? And John is expecting to see the king of the beast, right? A powerful lion from the tribe of Judah. But instead he turns and then I saw a lamb. Looking as if it had been slain. So though this lamb is slain, he's very much alive. And this lamb, who's clearly Jesus, is standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. The lamb had seven horns, which represents perfect power, and seven eyes, which represent perfect knowledge, which are seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And now, why is Jesus pictured as this victorious lamb? Well, because he displayed his strength through meekness because on the cross he conquered through sacrifice. You see, as crazy as it sounds, the lion of Judah is a lamb. You know how many times the word lion is used in the word of Revelation? Once, right here. The lion's a lamb. Crazy. So here, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Pretty cool. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. And then I heard the voices of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000, which is 100 million. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. That heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. Someday we're going to sing that song in heaven, right? Let's rehearse it. Let's rehearse it. It's right up here. I'm going to count on three. We're just going to say this together, right? We're going to rehearse. You guys ready? You guys ready? Are you ready? Yeah, you got to put the bowl down. Okay, we're good. Okay, one, two, three. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. 
Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Where is the lamb? That's the question of the ages. Behold, the lamb is the answer to that question. And worthy is the lamb is our worshipful response to Jesus our Savior, the lamb who was slain. Now there's one more phrase I want us to consider as we unpack this concept of Jesus is the Lamb of God. And be honest, I, I, I prefer to skip it. it. It's much easier to end on a high note, right? It's sweeter, more fun. But the final phrase is found in the very next chapter of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 6. <clears throat> and it's the phrase, hide us from the Lamb. You see, it's this, it's this graphic picture of, the, of Christ's return and and how those who chose to reject him will respond. Revelation 6, beginning at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the military commanders, the rich and powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Terrifying. Terrifying. That's going to happen one day. Who is able to stand? No one except those who have surrendered their lives to the Lamb. In the very next chapter, in chapter 7, John paints this picture of all the people throughout all of history that have been God's people that have, and that have surrendered to Christ. And it's a bunch. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. It was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could count, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were robed in white with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And check this out. Verse 15. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Where is the lamb? Slaughter the lamb. Led like a lamb. Behold the lamb. Hide us from the lamb. And worthy is the lamb. I came across this story this week of an artist named Steinberg who had taken in a a, a young gypsy girl to pose for his paintings. And at the time he was working on one of his famous paintings called Christ on the Cross. And one day as the girl watched him working on it, she said, he must have been a very wicked man to be nailed to the cross like that. No, he was a very good man, perhaps the best man that ever lived. He died for others. And the girl looked at the painting for a long time and looked at him and said, did he die for you? And at the time, this guy wasn't a Christ follower. And but the girl's question really caused him to think and to reflect. And later he gave his life to Christ. And, and I have a question for all who are listening right now or watching right now. 
Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Did he die for you? And if you have surrendered to him, it's time to celebrate how worthy he is of your worship. Amen? It's time to be excited because your sins are stinking gone, y'all. Man, they are gone forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. No guilt, no shame. Wrapped up in our shame, he took it all away. And if you haven't surrendered to him, let that question burn a little bit. You know, I, I would encourage you to, if you're not surrendered to Jesus, to, you know, um, at the top of this feed on, on, on uh, Facebook is my phone number, but I'll just say it right now. It's 434-284-1057. And my email is steve at thegrowseville.org. Um, and, and, and I would just encourage you to, you know, let me know what you're thinking. You know, if you want to surrender to him, if you want to meet me up here sometime today, and, you know, the baptistry is always ready to go, you know, 24-7, we can do that, right? I'm going to be doing a little Zoom chat after this. If you have any questions about what we talked about today or if you want to talk about your walk, um, it's going to pop up on the screen in just a little bit, you know, the Zoom address, and it's also in the Facebook feed. Um, but I just want to encourage you to think about it because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it sure be a shame for you and I to leave this world without him taking away our sins. Amen. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song. And after that, we'll take communion. Father God, thank you for the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. And I just pray that right now, God, that, that those who have surrendered to him as we sing this song, that, that we just picture ourselves in that great room with people from every tribe, tongue, and language surrounding the throne, and that we just worship and celebrate that you are worthy. Worthy is the Lamb, God, that we celebrate you, and our faces just light up because of what you did, that you purchased us with your blood to be God's people. And God, I, I pray for those who are just struggling, Lord. Help them to know, God, that, that you are worthy, Lord. Help them to know that you died for them and that you want to be their shepherd who leads them beside streams of living water. In Jesus' name, amen.